You're listening to Go with Jamarla Martin. We have a go hard or go home approach as we talk to the leading tech leaders, politicians, and influencers. Let's go. We're talking with Rodney Sampson, the founder and CEO of Opportunity Hub. Uh, we're going to dive uh, right in on Go. Rodney, tell me a little bit about your personal story separate from the business. Uh, where you're from, what's your background? Absolutely. Uh, first and foremost, it's a pleasure to be here with you at South by Southwest at HBCU at South by Southwest. Thank you for all of your work and contribution you know, to the innovation and entrepreneurship economy as well. So native of Atlanta, Georgia. From a technology perspective, while I go back to eight, nine years old, you know, you flip through the Sears catalog. We all flipped through them. We checked everything we wanted for Christmas and we weren't going to get everything, you know, for Christmas or what have you. And I stumbled upon this thing called a computer and actually checked it off. And actually my mother, my grandparents got it for me. Now, of course, this was pre-cassette where if you turned the computer off, you lost your code. But then shortly after that, I don't know if you remember the cassette tape recorders where you save your code. Yeah. If you actually played it, it sounded like they were, it was like scratching back. It was yeah. <laughs> anyway, so that was my entry, uh, I guess, as a, a young developer, as a, as a technologist. And so fast forward um, from the entrepreneurial side, um, attended Tulane University in New Orleans for undergraduate and started my, I would say, second uh, business there, like formal business. And then when I was um, in med school at Penn State, I actually um, started a restaurant. And so I actually, 1998, I was newlywed, and my wife and I moved back to Atlanta, Georgia. And that's where I came up with the concept for Multicast Media Networks and StreamingFaith.com, which was my first tech company in 2000. That was one of the companies that I actually experienced an exit from my co-founders and I. And I started that campus at that time really as a go-to-market founder. And so in 2000, there was not a lot of conversation about diversity and inclusion and equity and technology. Being in Atlanta, there was definitely conversation about access to government contracts and minority representation at corporations. So there was a conversation about it. But in those days, it was very, very nascent in terms of uh, black tech founders. There was Omar and Black Planet. Clarence Wooten was around. Uh, we all sort of looked up to Emmett McHenry. Um, I don't know if you know his story about network solutions or what have you. So. Um, very um, nascent in terms of just this concept of a black tech co-founder. And so that was, you know, the beginning of, 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 of my journey, I guess the intersectionality of technology and entrepreneurship. Okay, got it. Do you have a history in the church, black church? Um, I do. Yeah. I uh, grew up in the church, actually uh, very, traditional Pentecostal apostolic church, uh, very rooted in its own uh, traditions. Uh, there's actually a, a scripture that says, the traditions of men make the word of null effect. 
And so a very traditional organization, but rooted their family then transitioned to a more non-denominational, you know, open um, type of environment. I have four uncles that pastored or are pastors. And from a creative perspective, I was a musician, actually. So my first instrument was the violin, then piano, organ, keyboards. And so I actually found myself playing at churches. And then I started getting paid for it. And I was like, oh, this is a thing that you go play and you get paid for. It. And so um, that's a whole space. I don't talk a lot about it more because I'm kind of semi-retired from traditional. Um, and did you, you know, ever, did you ever preach? I have preached there. So if you, yeah. go, if you go to YouTube, you'll find some of my, my messages that have been archived or up there. And I actually... Um, in 2010, I was consecrated a bishop in an organization and not a traditional bishop that pastors a church. They call it a suffragan bishop. And that's a role that you focus on some type of space. And I was focused on economics and worked in that space for a few years trying to bring economic opportunities through the traditional system with not much success. At Rodney's uh, event yesterday, um, uh, thanks very much for the invite to moderate the panel on building uh, rocket ships. But I had a chance uh, for the first time to listen to you. And when you talk, you come across as someone where you're, you're talking about inequality, diversity, the wealth gap, but you talk with a certain conviction uh, where it's a lot different than some of the other stuff you hear out there, where I believe our people kind of need maybe for some of the economic principles that, that, that you talk about to possibly be wrap, wrapped up in a type of religious message? You know, when... In terms of a religious style message. Sure. Yeah. I, and if you listen long enough, you'll, you'll see it's, it's, it's there. I look at everything through an economic lens. So I even look at the Bible in an economic sense. They actually recorded more scriptures in the Bible on business and doing business than any scriptures about heaven, hell, sin, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so my lens is always looking at it from one, um, and it's a challenge because, you know, there's a human um, complexity to it, but if we go down this path, so in Genesis, it says um, man and woman were created in the image of, of God. And we traditionally think about that in a human construct. We think of a human image. And we look at the example of a God and us in terms of humanity. And we tend to like, if you look at the fundamental construct of Christianity, we'll go down this road for a minute. When you simplify everything and all the minutia is to become like Christ, right? We most look at becoming like Christ and his, his humanity. We have not explored becoming like Christ and his divinity. So if you study the divinity of a universal creator, there's this omnipotence, all power. There's this omniscience, all-knowing, this omnipresence. And so I've extrapolated and built a framework or principles to live by that are universal. For instance, omnipotent. 
power is not outside of ourselves. I talk about this in Your Manifest Destiny, one of, one of my books, Seven and a Half Words to Transform Your Future. And many times, even as a community, we're looking outside of ourselves. We're actually looking back to those who have, from an institutional perspective, personal and even interpersonal perspective, have oppressed us as a people globally. We look back to them for the answers to our own economic liberation. And so when you see yourself with omnipotence from an ephemeral or spiritual perspective, then you understand that everything you need to fulfill your definitive purpose or your, def your definitive purpose, as Napoleon Hill talks about, is already inside of you. It's in us personally. It's inside of us as a community. So I translate that. Um, when you talk about all-knowing, omniscience, just look at where technology is going now and how at its accelerated pace, what artificial intelligence is doing and what quantum computing is, is starting to manifest. The, the thought that you could have access to all information at one time, but in all times. You know, just kind of like this consolidation of history as a precedence for the future. And we see as technology proliferates. And it's like, that's important because history is precedence for the future. And if you don't know your history, you definitely know where you're going. So again, just translating that to practical contents. And then the final one is this, um, omnipresence, right? And I think even when we look at, our, when we wrap our human minds around the divinity of God, um, and, and ultimately I make a case, the case for innovation for us as a people and us as humans is because we are created in the image and not so much a human image, but a divine universal image. And I'll, I'll close this piece with that. So inside of that omnipresence, we tend to think about the impact of a creator or universal being or God impacting one time and one construct. And I expand that to suggest that this creator exists in all times at the same time. And if that creator were not in that time, that time could not exist. And so it broadens our construct by understanding the undefinable one. And if we understand it as a basis and foundation just for living life, business, entrepreneurship, and wealth creation, then we understand that an undefinable one that's bigger than even this ever-expanding universe we have, that undefinable one has all knowledge, all power, and all presence. And because of that, innately, in the case of creating something from nothing solving problems and turning it into something that actually could create multi-generational wealth is not so far-fetched. So that's the foundation. And when you have that foundation, hacking racial bias and AI, you know, corporate culture, you can survive any culture. And you can, and, and those of us who have built businesses, you know, most people think about institutionalized racism and discrimination working a job. They don't understand how it is embedded in term sheets and how valuations are shifted. I offer you one deal to buy your company and you walk in the room and I understand you're a person of color, then the valuation changes, right? And so the level of institutionalized racism increases the higher we quote unquote go up. And if you don't know who you are as just a grounded person, then you will be destructed just going through 
through the process. So. Yeah, that, that's a, a good point and a good lead into divorcing race from this question. Do you feel like there's a significant amount of discrimination against black people of faith and tech uh, in terms of the you know perception and you know you're not going to ra- raise through the ranks because you know you're not going out possibly partying as late as everybody else, drinking as much as everybody else. More so the the ride or die Christians mm. in terms of Man. what what type yeah. of what type of politics is going on uh there. You you're really taking me back. I mean, you know, building multicast media and streaming faith, it was interesting that there was a there was an industry that had been created where there were these tech companies that were focused on faith and spirituality. And I remember like Christianity.com you know, getting $40 million on a napkin because young man came in, not me, came in, pitched, and the man was like, man, I just felt like I was led to do this. He wrote a check. Um, that same person couldn't go to Sand Hill Road. You know, they couldn't, and we've seen the articles come out about these super parties, these super exclusive parties or what have you, he might not even get invited, so he wouldn't be in the network, what have you. That's number one, not being in the network and having access to the relationships. Number two is they don't understand the economics of it. And so when I looked at a church, I said, well, that's a business, and that business is an enterprise, and that enterprise needs software as a service. It wasn't even called software as a service. I was like, well, software as a service. They go to service, so... You know, let's do service as a service. Yeah. <laughs> and so um, I, I looked at it that way, but we were a isolated uh, bunch in those days. And I think, to be honest with you, between 2000 and probably 2012, in terms of um, diversity-led, faith-based-led startup, streaming faith was the only one that got traction, removing race and culture, if you can do it. It was an isolated niche, but when I saw what some of my white brothers and sisters were doing, Salem, Rick Killingsworth, these guys, Christianity.com, and OnePlace.com, and they were raising 20, 30, 40 million dollars back then. A lot of it with altruism, you know, and spirituality, uh, you know, connected to it. I was walking through the hotel um, today and noticed that there actually was a South by Southwest faith-based technology kind of niche. Small, but there was rep, you know, representation. Yeah. Right? yeah. Uh, do you think it's uh, fair to say that for the ride-or-die black Christian, in the tech establishment, they're essentially kind of forcing you to shut up and dribble in terms of waving who you are, I believe in Jesus Christ. That's what's fla- that's what flag I'm throwing up. Yeah. I'm not throwing up the money flag. I'm not throwing up all this other stuff you guys yeah. are talking about. I'm throwing up Jesus Christ. I got to think that yeah. in the culture out there, you're looked down upon. You're backwards. You're old school. Yeah. You know, we're not inviting you out. And 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 so there's there's a lot of that stuff. You know, uh, I, with, I, I went I, I went through that phase. You know, what's interesting is. What I've learned now is when you got the goods and you got what people want, it's, a, it's amazing what they put aside. I mean, think about it. We Transparently, we had a house yesterday. We'll have one tomorrow. We had open bar, rap music, food, drinks, partying, dancing, 
Next week, I'm speaking at one of the big mega churches in this country. You know, 20,000 members yeah, in I'm Chicago. Yeah, I'm talking about yeah. for the, the engineer, our employee, like a Facebook or a Google. I should have been more specific. Oh, yeah, 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 I mean, yeah, I'm, yeah, yeah, more so okay, inside cool. the establishment. Yeah, yeah I mean, kinda. if you don't want to, you know, do lines, snort coke, you know, <laughs> yeah. you know, you know hit on girls or guys without permission, you know, it's like this culture. You hear about yeah. some of the stuff coming in, like, you are square. You know, folks isolate you. I mean, the peer pressure to be in the in crowd. I mean, I mean, think about the archetype of a lot of our colleagues, engineers or what have you. Like, they were, you know, they were picked upon, bullied, come along the way. Now they got tech jobs, resources, they're in charge now. And it's like they're creating this in crowd they were ostracized, and now they're the cool kids, right? And so these are the cool kids' rules. So if you don't do this or that, then, you know. So if you're openly about your spirituality, or if you're not, and you just say, nah, I don't want to go have a you know, beer, and I don't want to have that, you could run into some, some, some serious issues. I so think. as you know, um, you know, there's been a lot of discussion and litigation uh, from uh, white males in Silicon Valley specifically where they're saying, hey, we're discriminated against because we're more conservative. Now, for black conservatives, mm -hmm. particularly people uh, coming at the, out the church, uh, ride or die Christians, do you believe that discrimination uh, is there? And it's also valid for uh, black Christians uh, out there in Silicon Valley. I think it's valid for just black people. You know, period. It's like you're getting stabbed in terms of discrimination. It's the intersectionality of oppression. <laughs> you know, yeah. when you, you, you layer on color, race, southern dialects or geographical, you know, uh, issues, gender, sexuality. You know, it's like, it, you know, disability. It never, it never ends, right? Um, and it, it just amazes me. You know, Silicon Valley is such a false meritocracy. You know, the idea that the best ideas rise to the top. No, they don't. You know, I'm even questioning whether the best ideas in America rise to the top anymore. Yeah. You know, genius, you know, is evenly distributed. But yeah. opportunity isn't. And there are folks that are building stuff and solving problems that are not even having the the opportunity to get turned down. Yeah, it brings to mind, yeah. uh, you know, in the community, we, you know, we would always say, our people would always say that, I knew a guy who was better than Jordan. He just never got the opportunity. Yeah. You believe that applies uh, to tech? Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I mean, if you just look at this, it's a big planet. And, you know, I believe ideas to solve problems, you know, like coming to the universe, I mean, you know, the person who created the straw, right? There are probably several people who came up with the straw. Someone decided to build it and, you know, take it, take it to market. And then the person who take it to mar took it to market had the means to get it to market. I said this yesterday. You know, we live in an era. It's definitely not equitable, you know, looking at the statistics. And I don't want to, you know, use time up regurgitating the data because it's just, you know, we do a lot of, there's a lot of thought leadership around data regurgitation. And there's really no solutions tied to that. So I don't, I don't want to do that. But, I mean, for the first time in history, the opportunity to create multi-generational wealth with no reliance on pre-existing multi-generational wealth exists.
If you like what you're hearing, you could check us out at moguldom.com. That's M-O-G-U-L-D-O-M.com. That's moguldom.com. We have the latest information on tech, crypto, the business of Hollywood, and economic empowerment. Uh, you can also check me out on Twitter at Jamarlin Martin. Let's get back to the podcast. Yeah. Why do you think, uh, so, you know, there's a lot of uh, folks out there uh, who talk about diversity and inclusion, but you don't hear a lot of voices calling out specific names and institutions. So we have this discriminatory culture and, you know, there's a diversity problem, there's a discrimination problem, but there's no names or institutions attached to the discussion. So you have a bad culture. We don't like that culture. We don't like the outcomes of that culture, but there's no individuals, leaders, or institutions who are on the hook. And, you know, my point of view is a lot of that comes from our economic insecurity where folks, you know, in varying degrees, you need to shut up and dribble or you're going to, you know, miss a check or two or, or mm-hmm. you know, you won't get a check at all. Yeah. So, you know, how do we go beyond talking about, hey, there's a problem of diversity and inclusion, uh, but we need to start holding people, institutions yeah. accountable. This this culture is not coming from some spook are some ghosts, right? There's people mm. who are perpetuating this. Who are they? Well, to be candid, they're some of the founders of some of my sponsors and partners. You know, I partner with these companies, but I evolved a long time ago. And I guess when you achieve certain levels of success and, you know, part of a success and means and the other side of it, you just don't care anymore because you, you know, want, you want to live your truth. You know, the, the companies, the Facebooks, the Googles, you know, they write us checks, right? And... Um, when you look at how they have literally just monopolized, and that's what I was about to say, you know, everyone wants to say, oh, my grandfather and my grandmother, you know, they came from a different era. Things were different then. Times were different then. But no, these were 24, 34-year-old, many immigrants to America that literally adopted inside of their subculture the same archetypes of a Jim Crow era, the exclusion there. And that's why when we have conversations, I, I have an onboarding you know, I'm a, with, with our partners and sponsors. And I say, listen, you're going to come to this program and you may hear some things that are uncomfortable because we're going you know, to speak our truth. And if that's a problem and you need to, you need to you know, hold your check, that's fine. You know, I'll, I'll write the check. Would, so. You know, one of uh, your supporters is the sister of Mark Zuckerberg, uh, Randy Zuckerberg. Is that correct? No. Oh, I, Chan Zuckerberg, Ch- Mark's wife, Priscilla. Okay. Yeah, I've okay. never met Randy. Yeah. Okay, Chan Zuckerberg. Yeah. Man, you're in deep. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Uh, so Chan Zuckerberg. Now, so she's supporting you. I never met her, by the way. Oh, you never met her. Okay, so no. it's just kind of a distant. Well, supporter. Maurice, the the head, the program, the head of the head of diversity went to Morehouse, one of your Morehouse brothers. Okay, and um, he's around. And Maurice was hired through Jim Shelton, who was uh, an Obama cabinet secretary of education, and Jim runs education at the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative. Okay, got it. Yeah. So I want to make sure. Uh, yeah, we, we didn't we didn't lean in, bro. Okay. All right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I want to talk about your new uh, vision, which is an extension of your prior work. You've been out here in these tech streets for a long, long time. You've been consistent. You've been one of the early pioneers 
in this type of work. How did you come about the idea of Opportunity Hub? Well, this is a part of solving the problems and challenges of when I was a founder, number one. And then number two, high growth technology careers or in high demand technology careers rather and high growth entrepreneurship is the most accelerated path out of poverty and income you know any inequality and so and the basis is encapsulate, encapsulated in kingonomics so my latest book latest meaning it's the latest one in five years because uh, Kingonomics, 12 Innovative Currencies for Transforming Your Business and Life, inspired by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. That book took me two years to write. And I often tell people, it was released in 20, uh, late 2012, early 2013, took two years to write. It was really what I was thinking in 2007. So by the time it came out in 2013, I'm thinking somewhere else now. But it provides great context in terms of how can access to the innovation entrepreneurship and innovation economy we call it the ecosystem for socially disadvantaged communities that have been traditionally locked out of other industries if we can get in those industries and build opportunities or build our own ecosystem we can disrupt poverty and the wealth gap and so for the first year when the book came out we hosted these large-scale conferences largest one might have been 2,000 people simultaneously i had taken a role on the production staff of, of Mark Burnett Productions, i.e. Shark Tank, uh, diversifying Shark Tank, negotiated Troy Carter's uh, deal as a guest shark there, started the minority casting calls that values partnerships and branding are continuing on now. And so it helped us build those conferences. We would do casting calls at the conferences. Thousands of people would show up. And so I did my own customer discovery and said, um, if you were inspired by Kingonomics and you want to create wealth through innovation, through entrepreneurship, through investment. What do you believe you require? First thing was just a collaborative workspace or safe space to build without the everyday interruptions of personal bias. Meaning when I go to predominantly white tech hubs, it's nothing for the founders. And I've been there you know, owner of a tech hub, go to another tech hub space, and I'm walking through someone that, you know, can I help you? Um, do you know where you're going? Or what's the restroom? And it's like, bro, I'm a founder. Or, bro, I'm an eco. You yeah. Know, you know, and folks are like, can we just have a space? It's hard enough building a company, right? Yeah. Can I just have a space where I don't have to deal with that? When I walk in, it's like, it's Wakanda up in here, right? Yeah. And so we created that safe space. The second thing was I need mentorship. Not from retired professionals and people who've actually never built a business. It may have some insight on when you're scaling a company in terms of systems. Tell me how to build something from nothing. Tell me how you failed. Tell me how you closed your first term sheet, your first contract, your first service level agreement. How'd you hire your first person? And so we curated these mentors. And so it was a mentor in residence program. Third thing was I need to understand how to navigate the ecosystem. How do I navigate the entrepreneurial ecosystem? How do I compensate advisors? What's the difference between a mentor and advisor? When should a mentor evolve to an advisor and when should they have advisor shares? What is the cap table, right? All of these nuances, right? And so we added all those programs, pre-accelerator, incubator, uh, started making investment. And so we literally started doing everything 
that we didn't have access to back in 2001 or you know from 2000 to 2010 we didn't have access to it. and that's how opportunity hub was born as the manifestation of kingonomics but also to provide to others what had not been provided to me okay explain opportunity hub in terms of what your core focus uh is in terms of the business application to my grandma in Watts, California? Basically, you pay to get on the platform, like a subscription, in some shape, form, or fashion, and we connect you with the innovation economy to the exposure. So we're at HBC or South by Southwest. We're exposing our customers, which are actually sponsored by companies, so they didn't have to pay to the innovation economy, to the startup entrepreneurial ecosystem, number one. Second is access to the knowledge, the vetted knowledge from people who've actually done it, not people who have speculated about it, but people who've so done it. So essentially like, hey, just like Harvard is getting their checks, Stanford is getting their yeah. checks, I'm providing knowledge value where, hey, we need our checks too. Absolutely. Yeah. And then we go a little deeper in terms of like some of our Software development program, get you hard skills at Java, you know, it's JavaScript. One day it'll be Solidity on blockchain. Entrepreneurial skills as well. You know, I have a simple thesis. You know, to withdraw from an ecosystem, you have to invest in the ecosystem. And I believe that you should invest in yourself to get access to this information. I mean, there's various levels of subscription. And it goes back to the fundamental business model of a co-working space. It's a membership. You pay a membership and you get access. So my first iteration was you get space and mentors. Now we've got six years of hindsight, have, having built out four campuses in that period of time, which is pretty accelerated. Some look to us like, you know, the godfather of black tech hubs. And it's like, okay, as long as we can mentor and there's a network of people that we've, we've, we've now assembled that are doing similar things like this and they look to us for mentorship. We're now saying productize it decentralize it and so now we're essentially building technology so that they don't have to come to Atlanta and get a membership that they literally can go on their phone their tablet web app or college campus and be a part of the opportunity hub and be on ramp to the innovation economy yeah one thing that's uh uh, I find unique about your leadership is I look at you, you have the experience of an elder, but you're also on the front end of blockchain innovation where you guys have been doing a lot of interesting uh, things in Atlanta. You're connected to a lot of the blockchain founders out of Atlanta that have raised capital uh, with ICOs. What kind of, you know, that, that kind of combination of, hey, I have ex extensive operational uh, management experience, but at the same time, I know my stuff on blockchain and I'm at the start of this. I'm, I'm pretty much embedded in this new evolving industry. I've never been fearful of tuition. And for many people, tuition is in the form of an investment check that many times we know most high growth startups fail. They never make it. And why do, you know, we continue to invest because we learn, we meet new people, we get access to the experts at the building because they're the experts and they're busy, but they respond to a check. And so I've been in a position 
either personally or through the funds that I'm invested in to write checks in early blockchain companies. But when I go back, I think about my formal you know, education through Tulane, Penn State, and Keller. And then I look at the education I got from my failed startups where we lost money. I look at the education from you know, conferences that might have cost seven and $10,000. And people say, well, why would you pay that to go to a conference? It's only going to be 60 people there. I said, yeah, but I want to meet the other 60 people who dropped 10K because then I built that, that network. So I've never been afraid to pay tuition. And so I look at angel investing or investing as tuition. And if I get a return on my investment, then that becomes um, extra. And then we pivot to the next. So I was able, because of having built this ecosystem, and one of the things when you build a tech hub, the founders come looking for you because they may have domain expertise in their science or the problem they're solving, but all the other things we talked about, they absolutely have no idea. So they come to tech hubs looking for it. So we've, you know, we say they build it, they will come. In this one instance, besides the pyramids, um, in this one instance, it seems like we built something that they will come to. And then I'm responsive to, wait, what do you say you solving? Okay, that could change the world. So like meeting Sean Wilkerson at stores and being able to get in his deal. And then patient Tory. And I'm like, this is happening right here in Atlanta. And I saw how much uh, did uh, Storage and Patientory yeah. raise, uh, both black founders, how much did they raise total and aggregate on their ICOs? There's aggregate and then there's approximate value to date, right? So Sean raised $30 million in his token sale when Ether was at $200. Yeah. A little under $200. Patientory raised $7.2 million. And what I think a lot of people may not be considering, a lot of folks on the first startup, right? And they go into it to get an exit or to create a lifestyle. What we've noticed is that within the span of three days or seven days with storage and three days with patient tour, they've done two things. They've created multi-generational wealth for themselves and their families with the reserves they have from the token sales and the value. Think about it. Ether went from 200 to almost it's over 1,000, went to 1,000 by the end of the year. So think about Sean having 30 million in Ether. What does 30 million in Ether go to 200, right? Multi-generational wealth. And then Sean sends out this letter to shareholders and says, I just want to let you know we have a 100 years of runway. So having the capital to then actually build the product. So he's committed to solving the problem, but multi-generational wealth is behind him. It's like I went into the future, became wealthy, and came back in seven days to still build this company to help you. <laughs> yeah, so you know, you're out here preaching uh, this mission in terms of economic justice, self-empowerment uh, for black people. Do you believe there are culture vultures out there including black folks where they're talking a lot about economic justice and diversity but they're like the cb4 rapper i don't know if you remember uh that that, that movie cb4 just kind of a fake nwa yeah that was yeah, that yeah. was uh, produced by the record industry do you believe there's a lot of fake stuff out there who are looking to 
kind of capitalize uh, on these ongoing issues. But, you know, set, different from you, they're not writing checks. They're not actually investing, putting money at risk in terms of solving the problem uh, like you're doing. Uh, do, do you see some of that stuff out there or, or not so much in terms of a lot yeah. of CB4 fixed stuff? I mean, every industry has it. And what I've resolved is there's an overabundance of inspiration and somewhat how-to, but there's not a lot of execution. And I try to rationalize with balance that there are some folks that are too exposed. There's some to educate, some to connect, and some to fund. We happen to be in a unique position where we operate across all four dimensions. We're exposing people. We are educating people. We're helping them get placed in jobs. We're building these ecosystems to connect them with resources and to encourage them to build resources. And then we're writing checks and then building check networks, building syndicates. And, and like Janice Bryant Howard, who was with us, everything at this point is intentional. Can you intentional. tell our audience uh, uh, who yes. Janice is? Janice Bryant Howard and her husband started at One Global in the 60s and does billions of dollars a year in staffing and staffing software and staffing consulting through the At One group. Some of you may know, uh, I believe, a portfolio company called Apple One. That's in their portfolio. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. Apple yeah. One is their, yeah. their, their staffing company. And this is Janice's second year. And Janice knows this. I'm cultivating women and men like Janice to be our 10, 20, 30, 40, $50 million VCs. Um, Two years ago, I had the iconic Mac Wilborn, who had the first McDonald's franchise in, in the 70s, awarded to him, and now owns the highest gross in Popeyes. Mac came to South by Southwest two years ago, and now he's investing in tech startups, venture syndicates, funds, et cetera. Because I think innately, if you are a successful entrepreneur that has benefited from the blood, sweat, and tears policies in government contracting, 8A certification, uh, minority supplier development, uh, and the like, you have a responsibility to pay it forward, and you should invest it and, and, and perhaps make some money. So, you know, again, to answer your question specifically, are there those that are culture vultures and all they want to do is inspire you, lead you to the will and, and, well and offer you no water? there or are they just new at this where they think that's enough I'm trying to figure it out right and having spent time talking to people and discerning you know kind of like reading I don't know for sure so I'll give them the benefit of that into proving but I, because they're younger and they're getting more access to money and capital, they've got to catch up faster. What took me 20 years should take them three. So it's not enough to expose, connect. There's a lot of, we have too many pop-up events and networking. 
by the time you come out of college or the time you get your certification to code or sell or do something, you should be almost through the pop ups. You should be so busy doing your business. You go to a pop up for 30 minutes just to meet one person to speak and leave, not making your career networking and your business on the side. And so I think we have to elevate from that until until not until we have to elevate from that to the actual company building work. And there's an evolution. See, I have 20 years of hindsight. And then I have a wife that speaks into me and watches me and advises me and ideates a lot of this as well. A lot of these folks don't have that covering and that, that partnership. So I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt today. But I'm going to be watching three to five years because what happens when they can push a hashtag further and they can push media a little bit further and they can get the community swell and they're not actually doing that work that is critical it hurts us or they may not even have the conviction uh it's just a a profit opportunity uh hey you know we are in uh, america right yeah Uh, that's right and and i think you know we want to be profitable you cannot disconnect particularly in our community profits without immediate or simultaneous social impact. It's not enough for you just to do it yourself, for yourself. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, how you have handled criticism from within the community where you're very vocal, you're doing your thing, you're not following anybody. But, you know, I noticed on Twitter there was a little kind of Twitter beef uh, with another uh, uh, person doing work out there. Mm -hmm. How have you handled criticism? Yeah, that was interesting. You know, normally I wouldn't have engaged but it was because it was a younger lady involved, and I felt like some bullying was going on. And well, I why was, bully you? What was the, the thing? Well, folks come for me, and I'm, I'm used to it, right? And they weren't so much bullying me. There, there are folks in the culture who feel like there should be autonomy around their intersection. This is my block. You know, I'm helping black women. I'm helping Latinx women. You. You a man, stay out of that. I'm like, well, I'm a wife. I mean, I'm would, a would ma- like wife. I got a you, wife with children. Would you describe <laughs> that as a hood mentality? Because, you know, like, hey, it's my block and there's not enough room. You know, you're kind of coming over yeah. on my territory. There's a lot of killmonger in all of this. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like, I want access and, you know, I'll fight you for it. And, man, it's mine now. Forget all that other stuff. So, yeah, it's, it's a lot of that. Yeah, Unfortunately, it's, yeah, you know. I, I can see some yeah. of that in the... You know, my background is in digital media. You know, I've been in the industry for over uh, 10 years. But it's important for us as a people, as you know, that there's not enough crumbs to be fighting for. we got to be thinking about the big picture in terms of alliances. Right. And one thing I struggle with is I see some criticisms of, you know, certain folks out there. But you're going to call out you're going to call out the name of this activist or this leader, this scholar. But you won't call out the names of. Mark Zuckerberg, you won't call out the names of white folks. Why, why, why is that? Some folks need rent paid. Yeah. You know, some folks still want to be the only one in spaces. One of the things that I've, I've, if I integrate a space, which in tech, you know, we're still literally integrating spaces. I'm in the room when I'm meeting people. I'm like, I just really need to meet one person. But if I meet someone that's like another ecosystem builder of color, you know, because I can't do it all. Oh, you were in Miami. Oh, okay, I'll bring you in because you got Miami. You in D.C., you got Philly, you got Chicago, you got, you know, Seattle, what have you. If we're going to scale this, I've got to have 
those alliances. We may not always agree, like your model versus my model, your branding, how I said something, nuances, right? But when I get into a room, some people want to integrate the room and like close the door behind them. And, you know, that insecurity uh, rooted in self-hatred, you know, um, is, is a very interesting thing. And I don't think I can, I can hack that piece or what have you, especially in this time here, or just it's not, maybe it's not my calling to save those people. There are people I believe that want to be in the ecosystem that we've got to get to that aren't nuanced on, you know, man, you got your panel sponsor and they didn't sponsor your, you know, your panel. Like, we curate this, you know, we're the largest, you know, inclusive event here. People troll our panelists and say, hey, you're in town for so-and-so. Can you come speak for me? And we ought to be talking because can you split the bill that I had to pay to get them here? Then, you know, let's crowdsource this thing. Yeah, playing devil's advocate. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what do you say uh, to that brother or sister, uh, you know, when when some folks say, hey, this is self-hatred, this is crabs in a barrel. What do you say to, to that brother or sister who will say, this is just capitalism and competition, where, you know, if you go to any other industry, any other race, uh, this is just natural competition within capitalism. Why are you asking black people uh, uh, to to deviate from that, where everybody's going after kind of the same peanut? Because the average net worth of a black person in 2053 will be zero, and it's 11000 a day. We haven't arrived. We, we, we suffer from arrivism, and we really haven't arrived. You know, your six-figure job, your 250, your one exit, if you don't even understand the value of a dollar, you'll be broke in three years. So I think before we can even have a conversation about subscribing to capitalism and it's the form that we have been exposed to, we've got some problems to solve inside of our community that take money and resources, and these are legitimate concerns. So I think... We want to have, you know, we want to have, we want to take on the persona and archetype of the very oppressor in terms of the oppression that we say we're hacking. And I think that's, that's I fundamentally have a problem with that. Okay, got yeah. it. So, you know, I was uh, tweeting the other day about the endowments of Morehouse, Spellman, and Howard being uh, approximately $800 million. Why are aren't these endowments, these university endowments, they're mm -hmm. investing in stocks, bonds. Why aren't they deep in the black tech space? Why aren't they working with you to develop kind of disruptive investment schemes where they can be more competitive with other universities at the endowment level? You know, success is the greatest contributor to complacency. That's what I've realized. When you have achieved success, the Mecca, um, on top, you become more susceptible to status quo and your small, you know, steps seem innovative where there's this whole world of disruption. I mean, if you're, if, if, if you think about it, there's an amazing opportunity right now to just really reboot our historically black colleges and universities with updated curriculum, you know, internship, apprenticeships, co-op programs, and literally transform the business schools, the managerial sciences. If you look at one and a half the endowments of like a Stanford or MIT or Harvard, 
Look at the money that comes into the business school through entrepreneurship and wealth. Have you read anything uh, about it, uh, HBCU investing in black tech equity in terms of, you know, being thoughtful and active and like we got to play in this space. We, we don't need it to be 10 percent of our uh, yeah. portfolio allocation, but we have to be playing in this space. We have an yeah. advantage. In I don't terms know of if access. they're writing checks yet. I think they're still in the can we get a grant to run a program. Man, is that a welfare mentality in terms of grant or program to invest in private equity? I think it's just what we know. Most folks, you know, we, we have to go deeper and say, like, there's income and there's equity. Most folks go through their entire life not even thinking about ownership or equity outside of their home. But these right? are but these people are managing, you know, in some cases, hundreds of millions of dollars. Really? Howard at over a half a billion. And they should Spelman have, they should a, have a, an allocation to alternative investment class. And that alternative investment class should include private equity. It should include seed. It should include venture. It should include blockchain. And don't you think that uh, they would have a competitive advantage if they got deep in the black tech space Absolutely. where they have access to graduates and, you know, they're yeah. getting into these companies very early where you turn black yeah. into an advantage yeah. Uh, you think that's yeah. a big opportunity for them? It's a huge opportunity. There should be a $100 million fund that if you have an idea that comes through an HBCU or is associated with, you've got a found on your team, you should be able to go get capital. Uh, what do you believe about the statement that, hey, you know, stop crying about Silicon Valley not giving you money and begging Silicon Valley for investment dollars because, you know, your, your HBCU endowments you know, 800 million, uh, your wealthy uh, black people in the United States, they're not really investing with a mandate to tap black tech. So why are you going to Silicon Valley tax for white folks to invest more than 1% when, when your own people won't do it? We're always playing other folks' games. But one thing I do notice is that when we play a game, we win the game. Even if you look at uh, baseball, when we were able to play, when we were able to integrate baseball or football or basketball, whatever game we are allowed to play and the rules are the same and aren't changed when we get in the game, we win. So a part of us, we should be continuing to basically knock down the doors everywhere, pitching everybody. But at the same time, it's a injustice if we do not capitalize on what we already have our black churches one of the largest institutions we still have collectively and individually in some cases our black schools absolutely our black organizations i was beating the path trying to get these large organizations with um, deep networks databases when we were advocating for the Jobs Act and equity crowdfunding to say, you have a crowd of people. Do you know if out of your 100,000, if 10,000 every month would invest 100,000, what we could do? And there's just stagnation in terms of the level of risk, but what they don't understand is their people are saying, give me an opportunity to do something I've never been done before, I'll take the risk. And so to sum all of that up, you know, we, we talk about the net worth. We're not talking about the trillion we're spending after taxes. How can that be repurposed? We're not talking about the billions that go into the black church that if managed more properly could be 
almost like workforce funding organizations to fund training and education in our communities for the skills of the future. We simply need to reposition. We're asking tech companies to transfer 10%. We got institutions that could transfer 10%. Just a tithe, a 10%, a tithe. And so a part of my message when I move, I had to remove myself from the traditional institutions for a season. Now, it's like Moses had to leave Egypt and go into the desert. He couldn't have said, you know, Pharaoh, let my people go. He had to leave the palace, go in the desert, get his stuff together and come back. And now we're starting to have those conversations again. So I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, when I'm in a room, I'm going to have a conversation about, you know, you got a $30 billion fund. I need an inclusion rider, right? Hashtag inclusion rider. Forget representation on panels. Can we get representation on the cap tables? That's you know, where there's opportunity. But while we have that conversation, can we get y'all to pay it forward back home by also helping us build this black tech ecosystem as well? Back to looking at the big picture and scaling up uh, black folks, black institutions working together. What probability percentage would you say that that there's a, a possibility that Morehouse, Howard, Spellman, those endowments will work together on due diligence, on opportunities, on knowledge sharing, on commissions and fees, mm -hmm. uh, where, you know, there's a bigger push at the endowment level to not only, you know, outperform on their investment returns, but outperform in terms of giving back to the community. I'm going to dig deeper there. I mean, we, we have, Within the next yeah. five years, you would see something like that. Yeah, I, I believe that's an incredible opportunity. I mean, we're launching a technology and blockchain lab at Morehouse. We have a pre-accelerator program we're running with Morehouse now. Uh, my wife is a Howard grad, and so uh, my daughter may be going to Spelman. I'm going to make it my business to figure out how to have those conversations at the level, not, Man, you, at, not the you, level of you, the president. You, you're living that life uh, all across the board. I'm not going to just have the conversation with the presidents. I need to talk to the board. I need to talk to the major donors. See, the folks who write the check, you know, structure the ideals. You know, when I take your money, I take your ideas to some degree. I have to listen to you. I have to take you into consideration. And I think we're having a conversation with the wrong people. We're having conversations with folks who are trying to keep their jobs and their status. And we need to talk to people who are writing the checks to the institutions to set the precedence. And it has to flow that way. And then it also has to come out of the student body. If I'm going to give you $100,000, you know, in four years of my life, when I leave here, I expect to be able to contribute to society and not have to worry about poverty, income inequality, because all these other things will, will remain the same with nuances. We keep repeating some of the same things we should have solved as, as, as human beings, at least in America. So um, I'm going to work. That's a part of, you know, with this program, HBCU at South by Southwest, a thousand students applied. We uh, brought 125. Now we're launching Opportunity Hub chapters at these, these schools. We're not so much working with the administration. We're working with the students. And then the students are going to the administration and say, we want this give us an official chapter. What do you tell your customer? No. And so the students are the customers to the schools and they are our customers, but they are ambassadors and advocates. So there's working with the students and working with the funders of these institutions. Let's thank Rodney Sampson for coming on Go. You could check out uh, his book, Kingonomics by uh, Rodney Sampson. Make sure you pick up a copy and also check out Opportunity Hub. There's gonna be a lot of opportunities and momentum there. I'm expecting a great thing. 
Thanks, everyone, for supporting the Go Podcast. You can check me out on Twitter at JamarlinMartin. Uh, you can also check us out at Mogledom.com. Be sure to subscribe to our Mogledom newsletter. You're going to get the latest on crypto, tech, economic empowerment, and politics. If you like the show, be sure to go to Mogledom.com. Let's go.